So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. Continuing this um, First Things First series, idea being that Jesus makes certain things more prominent than other things, and the hope being that we'd be able to come to the end of the year by God's grace and look back and see we prioritized what Jesus prioritized. So when he said, first do this, give your attention to this, and he sets it apart from other things, that we'd be able, by God's grace, here at the outset of the year, to, to put first things first. And so we looked last week at seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus' words. What a wonderful way to begin our year, hearing Jesus say, seek this above all things. And then here this morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 7, another one of Jesus' firsts. Follow along with me, if you would, and beginning in verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, Take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. So two questions to think about in light of, I think, two big truths that are prominent and contained in these words from Jesus. And I want to get us to think about this under two questions. The first is this. What if contrary to the culture's narrative about the Christian church, what if the church wasn't full of hypocrites? What if the church was full of people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, humbled by our own sin, aware of our own sin, and then therefore ready to help others, ready to help others from a a position of understanding, of sympathy, of compassion. That's question number one. Question number two really derives itself from verse six, and that's this. What if instead of forcing a message on someone who doesn't want it, you and I discerned where God is already working, and we sowed intentionally there? Our primary sowing was right there where we discerned that God was working. That's a couple questions for us to think about. So this year, you may not realize this, I, I just realized it this week. This year is the 70th anniversary of George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984. So if the math is confusing, he didn't write it in 84, that wouldn't have been 70 years. He wrote it in 49, about 84, right? So it's 1984. Unlike many of you, I didn't read it in school growing up at any point, but I read it this past week. And even reading through it, I thought, oh, that's familiar. I've heard that before, right? So that the three statements or slogans of the party of Big Brother, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And you come to the end of the story, and that ignorance is strength theme is chillingly depicted in the death of the main character, Winston Smith. And in a way, I would submit to you, in a way, our passage is about ignorance. Our passage is about blindness, 
two kinds of blindness. And the, the, the ministry misfires that take place because of ignorance and because of unawareness and blindness. So there's, there's this blind hypocrisy and judgmentalism on the one hand, which prevents us from being able to help our brothers and sisters because we've got something stuck in our own eyes so we can't see, right? And then there's this almost opposite problem in verse 6. Verse 1 to 5 seems to be hyper-discernment, hypercritical discernment, and verse 6 is no discernment. So it's like an all or nothing, right? That's kind of the, the feel that you get in this passage. The person in verse 1 to 5 thinks, everybody needs my ministry because what a moral train wreck this society is. And thank God I'm here, right? That's the feel of the first five verses. But ver- the person in verse 6 thinks, everybody wants my ministry because this world is basically filled with people who will love Jesus if I can just get close enough to them, you know, and strap them down, make them a captive audience, pour it in. It'll be painful for a second. Pour it in. You'll thank me later, right? That, that's almost the attitude of the, the second passage or the second part of the passage. So I believe the purpose of God in this passage is, is to equip us as Christians, to equip us with discernment, discernment about ourselves starting out, discernment in the mirror, and then discernment about how to minister to those around us and how to share the gospel with those around us. I think this passage is here in God's grace through the work of his spirit. Hopefully this passage is here to help us, you and me, to be humble and helpful and wise ministers of the gospel in whatever context we're in to the glory of God. How kind of Jesus to address us in his word and step close and say, hey, this year, put your focus here. First things first, number one, don't be critical. To put it very simply, don't be critical is a sum up of the first five verses. You know, there is no verse in the Bible that's more frequently quoted by non-Christians than Matthew 7.1. And sometimes it's even quoted by non-Christians in the old King James Version. You know, judge not that ye be not judged. Right? So know that we know this verse in our culture. And the way that it plays out in a relativistic, morally relativistic age is that this verse is taken to mean, hey, stay out of somebody's space. You know, live and let live. Don't tell people they're wrong. You know, don't intrude upon them with your definitions of right and wrong. Just be tolerant, be affirming, don't rock the boat, that kind of thing. Well, that's not the point of this verse. This is in your notes. Verse 1 isn't a command to keep your moral evaluations to yourself. And the reason we can say that clearly is because that's not Jesus' purpose in this very sermon. He is not keeping his moral evaluations to himself. Jesus is in the midst of preaching the most famous sermon in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, he, he is, it's, it's filled with moral pronouncements, with moral authority, with moral clarity. He's, he is saying, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't love like the Gentiles and tax collectors, right? He's saying he's calling out greed and lust and anger and ambition and pride. He's calling them by name and he's denouncing them throughout this sermon. And then Jesus isn't the only one who does that. 
So his disciples who come up after him, the apostles, they do it as well. Paul calls out sin, and Peter, and Stephen, and James, and John, and Jude, and all of them speak with, with moral clarity. Even if you keep reading Jesus' own words in this very gospel, you come to a place in Matthew chapter 18 where he says, try this at home. Help each other walk away from sin. He says in Matthew 18, if you see your brother in sin, go and appeal to him and say, hey, get out of that stuff. It's going to kill you. Come with me. Let's walk toward God. He says, you do that. You don't say live and let live. You go and find them. You try to bring them back. In other words, that's not judgmentalism. That's exactly the kind of ministry Jesus wants in the life of his church among his people, we do, we are our brother's keeper. We really do and are intended by God to help one another. So Matthew 7, 1 isn't everybody keep to yourself, hands to yourself, don't talk to anybody about sin. It's not Jesus denouncing moral discernment. It's in your notes. What Jesus is denouncing is a critical spirit. Judgmentalism, not judgment, judgmentalism, a critical spirit. Look, Again, with me at verse 3. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam? Sometimes it's translated plank or translated log. The beam of wood in your own eye. So some translate the word splinter as a speck of sawdust. It's, it's just something really tiny. Tiny enough that it can... It can get lodged in your eyeball. It's extremely small. That's the point. So you get the speck imagery, and then you have this plank or this beam. It's the same Greek word that's used for the main beam in a floor or the main beam in the, the rafters, right, or in the roof of a building. So Jesus seems to be using a kind of intentional humor, almost satire, in this, he's saying, you're so concerned about the tiny sliver of wood you see in somebody else, and you don't realize there's a rafter sticking out of your head. He's, it's this uh, Captain Obvious type of moment that he's, he's trying to bring to bear. And, and the irony, it's just right there. It's so juicy, right? He's saying, here we're talking about a blind eye surgeon, right? A blind ophthalmologist, it's, it's kind of funny, right? This guy, he can't successfully operate on the splinter in somebody else's eye because there's a tree growing out of his face. We're going to have a problem, right? There, there's a practical, functional issue here. And what he's doing is he's addressing a common problem. It's in your notes. We see other sin in high definition but are oblivious to our own. How true is that, right? We see others sin in high definition. We can spot their failure at 100 paces, right? But we can't see it in ourselves. That's, that's what pride does, right? It, self-righteousness, it blinds us. There's no condition that's more obstructive to real discernment than pride. That's why Jesus, when he's describing the Pharisees, he said, they're the blind, leading the blind. They have no idea which way they're going. The, the Pharisees who thought, you just read their statements and watch them walk around on the pages of the gospel. They thought they were God's gift to the world. They thought we are the most discerning people in the world. And yet the most discerning people in the world couldn't find Messiah when he was standing in front of them with a name tag on. Messiah. John chapter 10. They say, why do you keep us in suspense, Jesus? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus says, 
I already told you, and yet you don't believe. I mean, I'm standing right here. You see the works that I do. What's not to, what's not to understand? It's, it's right here in front of you. But they were blind to it, right? They, everything they did, they did with a beam sticking out of their eye. They lived and they prayed and they worked and they worshiped and they tithed and they witnessed with beams sticking out of their eyes. Other people are the ones who have the problems. Other people are the ones who need mercy. Other people are the ones needing moral surgery. We're the ones who, who operate. We're not, we're not the recipients. We're not the patients. And we can have signs of a critical spirit in our own lives. Even as Christians, a critical spirit can get on us. So just think about a few aspects, the profile sort of of a critical spirit. You find yourself easily irritated with other people's weaknesses easily irritated by their shortcomings, constantly drawing contrast between what your abilities are and what other people's abilities are. Why can't they just do that? I can. It's constantly doing that, right? It's a critical spirit. Gossip reveals a critical spirit. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheistic philosopher, he, he said, no one gossips about other people's secret virtues. Right? What are we doing? We're standing on someone else's face so we can feel taller. So we can feel better about ourselves. It's a critical spirit. You read Christian books and you're thinking about other people and how much they need this. Right? Oh, this, oh goodness, this correction about spiritual comparison. I know somebody. Right? <laughs> the irony. Right? But that's it. Maybe even the way that we read the Bible. We read the Bible thinking, oh, I, I know someone who really needs to read this verse. I'll text it to them right now. We're just always thinking, somebody else is wrong. I'm in the right. Somebody else is wrong, and I need to identify that. Or maybe, maybe this. If somebody comes to you for help, and it quickly starts to feel like correction. It's like the first tool you reach for, pliers. Let's just get the, let's start turning on that bad boy, right? That, that's the immediate instinct. The first thing you reach for is correction. Not asking good questions. Not, not here to, to, to try to grasp all the potential factors that are at play in the situation. No, lock and load. Let's do this. Let's bring the correction. Let's bring the heat. Thank God I'm here, and thank God I'm here now. You're welcome, right? That's, that's the approach of self-righteousness, a critical spirit. And this critical spirit, friends, it comes with a warning from Jesus. He says, look at verse one. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others and you will be measured by the same measure you use. He's not just saying, if you judge others, they'll judge you. Karma, right? That, that's not what he's talking about. You know, what goes around comes around. No, it's more than that. The great New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, he writes this about this verse. Jesus' words surely refer to the divine judgment. To be quick to call others to account is to invite God to call us to account. How sobering is that? To be quick to call others to account is to invite God to call us to account. You look there in your notes. Here's the idea. There's this warning here. God's actions mirror our own. God's actions mirror our own. That's not just this, um, this one statement that Jesus makes. It's in a number of different places in Scripture. For example, Psalm 18. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. 
With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Right? God's actions mirror our own. Obadiah 15, for the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own head. James, Jesus' younger stepbrother, writes later on, he writes these words, judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. I'm not interpreting the passage. I'm reading it. That's God's word. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy, in other words, if you like justice better than mercy when you deal with others, God will like justice better than mercy when he deals with you. You see the warning. It's clear. It's, it's scary. But I, I love what James says next. Same verse, he says this. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Christian friend, mercy is a powerful thing. It's a powerful, redemptive thing. And if you're a Christian, mercy is a one-word summary of your life. If you had to sum up your life in one word, mercy gets it. It comprehends the whole of your life. That's why Paul said, if we understand the gospel, it excludes boasting. doesn't minimize it excludes boasting. Why? Because none of us deserved any of the good we've experienced at God's hands. All we deserve is judgment, and what we got is mercy. So what's the upshot? There's no strutting in Christianity. There's no swagger. There's no proud attitude throwing ourselves around like we did something to get here, right? Instead, what we really get is mercy. We're really adept at mercy. You know why? Because I get it anew every morning. It's my constant experience. It's chasing me every day of my life. I get mercy. I know how to do mercy because I get it constantly from God. You, you think about the, the posture between the church and the outside world. We, we look at the world and we see the world is broken. What does the world see when it looks back in our direction? Do they see that we're broken? Broken knows broken, right? Understands, right? You think about that. What, what, if, what if weary, sinful, broken Birmingham detected those people, those Christ followers at the Church of Brook Hills, they get it. I can tell they get it. They, they, and we understand it as Christians. We understand it not because we read a book about it, not because we heard second or third hand what it's like to be a sinner. We know it from the inside. We know what it feels like. We know what it tastes like. We know the gravitational pull of anger and lust and selfishness and addiction and greed. We know it deep down. We know it, right? We know the tricks we have to play in our minds to justify it. We know the temporary satisfaction of sin. We know the bitter aftertaste of sin. We can finish all your sentences. We've been there. It's our experience. Now, what if um, unbelieving Birmingham knew the real story of the Church of Brook Hills? What if they knew this, this assembly is not an assembly of the morally beautiful? 
It's an assembly of the morally bankrupt who have been shown the riches of God's grace contrary to what we deserve. That's the real story. And what if they could see it? They could pick it up in the way that we relate. It's the work of the Son of God that made us right with him. We have a story. That's, that's our story. It's a story where God, the Holy One, sends his only son to come into this world, live the perfect life that we couldn't pull off and can't pull off, will never pull off. And then he went to the cross and he hung there and he absorbed the blast of God's justice against human sin. And he walks outside of the tomb after he dies. Three days later, he's resurrected. And then he says, whoever hides in me, there's no condemnation for you, only welcome. And he says, I was disowned, you can be adopted. I was punished, you can be healed. That's the shape of the story of Christian faith. Jackie Hill Perry, I've referenced her book because it was one of the most powerful books that I read all last year. Her book is entitled, Gay Girl, Good God, The Story of Who I Was and Who God Has Always Been. What a title. And, and so she finds this kind of storytelling groove toward the end of chapter eight, right before part two of the book. And she finds a groove and she's talking about what God has done in her life to open her eyes to see how good and faithful and merciful he is. And here's what she says. Since God is good and holy and merciful and jealous and wise and incomprehensible and triune and beautiful and grand and insanely wonderful, how could I ever glory in a created thing? How could I live for something that was made as if it would not return from whence it came? But he, God in Christ, came from heaven for me. Of all people, who gave mercy my address? or told it how to get to my room. Didn't know a sinner lived in it on the way down the hall. Shouldn't the smell of idols kept its feet from moving any closer? Then I remembered the one verse of the Bible that I knew by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let me say to my non-Christian friends who may be here this morning, that is true Christianity. That's the real story. It's, it's based on true events that happened in real history that change everything about you and me the moment we believe them. They change everything about your life here and now. They change everything about your eternal future. Will you believe it? Will you run to the one hope of the world? There's not another hope coming. The one has been sent and it's Jesus, will you believe in him? Will you run to him and find refuge in him and trust God with everything? Church, Christian friend, that message, if that message gets into our bloodstream, all kinds of wonderful things start happening in, in my heart firing, in my life, in, in our environments and neighborhoods and families and friendships. We... We don't lose any moral discernment. We don't lose moral clarity by saying yes to Jesus. We see clearly now. He's taken the beam out of our eye, and now it's on, right? Now we can actually minister in a helpful way with understanding, with humility. We can come alongside others and say, here's the way free. Here's the way forward. That's the intention of where this passage wants to take us. 
So number one, don't be critical. Number two, don't be gullible. Don't be gullible. Verse six, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. So it's pretty graphic, right? The point is fairly obvious in the story. Wild dogs and pigs don't care about jewelry. They want to eat. That seems to be the imagery he's using. And where he's going with that is basically this. Some people aren't ready. Some people aren't ready. Some family members, if you make them a captive audience one more time, you three-circle diagram them one more time, they will eat you. Right? Jesus himself, the Savior, says, it's time to give it a rest. Give it a rest. There's a time to do that, right? And he doesn't just say that here. He says the same thing three chapters from now when he sends out his disciples. He says, go share the good news. Go, you know, share the gospel. And he says, here's another point that he wants to leave them with. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. Unless we think that maybe we're misconstruing his meaning there, Paul did exactly, literally that in his own practice in Acts chapter 18. It says, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews, there he's sharing, that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice. He says, clearly you guys are frothing at the mouth, we should leave. I'm gonna go, who wants to talk more about this? Titius Justice raises his hand, he says, where do you live? Next door, let's go next door. Let's talk about the kingdom, the things I was just talking about that amped everybody up. Let's talk, you and me, let's talk about that next door. I love um, Greg Kokel. He's a writer, he's an apologist. I love him because he's a likable Christian apologist, which is kind of a strange bird. There are a lot of Christian apologists, you can find them on YouTube, and their YouTube channel is basically them pounding their chest and beating other people to smithereens with their logic. And Greg Kokel says, if somebody gets angry, we've just lost something. We've just lost ground. He says, if somebody gets angry, they're not receptive anymore. That's not a win. Lathering them up is not the goal. He says, so if I can tell that there's resistance somewhere, he said, my goal ends up being, I just want to put a pebble in their shoe as they leave. We can part company. I'm not going to try to bring you full circle. I'm not going to ask closing questions. I'm going to put a pebble in your shoe and say, have a great day. That's his goal, right? And the point is this. It's in your notes. Don't cram the gospel down people's throats. Yeah, sometimes people break relationship with Christian friends or Christian family members, not because we were so faithful to share, but because we were insensitive. We weren't discerning of the moment. What do we need to remember? This is in your notes as well. God alone can work the miracle. Pray and discern how he's at work. Do you have a category for that? Do you have a category for have a nice day? It's been good talking. I think we're done here, right? Pray, God can work the miracle. That, that, by the way, is exactly where Jesus goes next. He says in verse six, 
don't throw what is holy to the dogs. They don't want it. And then he turns around in verse 7 and says, ask, seek, knock. In other words, what's he saying? Stop beating down Herdor and beat on gods for a while. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. And who are you talking to? God. Calling out to him in prayer for your friend, for your family member. Praying for them to get to a place where they're ready, where they're open, where they're receptive. My my prayer almost every day, I try to pray this every day, but it's probably almost every day that I'm praying. Beginning of the day, Lord, make me attentive. Make me attentive to your work, where you're already working. Help me to hear things. Help me to listen well. Help me to ask the right questions. Help me to show, demonstrate genuine interest in this person so that I'll have a chance to share more of Jesus with them. And sometimes that has gone in 2018. Sometimes that led to conversations where next thing you know, we're talking about burdens and cares and tears and pain and praying together. And sometimes it leads to that. And then There are times like this past week where I saw a guy, we were standing in line next to each other, struck up a conversation, we started talking about a number of things, and it just wasn't very long before you realized, okay, there's a a roadblock there. I don't think we're getting any further today. (laughs) And then get back to the office here after lunch and just pray for that guy by name. Lord, work. Lord, work. What, What if your ministry as a Christian was more reliant on the leading of God's spirit this year than ever before. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for us as a church? Attuned, antenna up. God, where are you working? What if we, what if our discernment started with our own blind spots? God, help me to see where I am by your grace. Help me to take steps forward. What what if we knew how to be helpful as ministers of the gospel? What, What if we knew when to wait on the words and labor instead in prayer so that we don't end up talking people to death or talking them, as the case may be, to life. But we pray. We've got other options, right? We can pray and that counts and God hears and he can massage the heart and take away stony hearts and make someone receptive like that. He can do that work. I want to leave us with three words before we leave, three words to think about. Uh, My friend, our friend, Ray Ortland pastor up there at Emmanuel, Nashville, um, he's got a number of different ministry mantras that he's been working on inculcating in their life as a church. And, and one of them is this, and I just want to get us thinking about it for a second before we go. It's this formula, gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. So I want us to think about that particularly as a local church. Just take them one at a time. Start with gospel. My brother um, was a track star in New Orleans, and he maybe still has the high jump record, uh, the state high jump record. He just his Fosbury flop was amazing, just great form, and he would just bound over that bar when everybody else is done. He just keeps going higher and higher, and he was so fast especially long distances, and he could run. And one of my favorite things was watching my big brother turn the corner. He was the fourth leg in the relay race, and I love, I can still picture it now, watching him turn that last corner and then just blow by everybody. It's awesome watching him run. This year I've been kind of just slowly walking through 
Mark's gospel, marinating in Mark's gospel slowly. And what I'm enjoying the most is watching Jesus run. And watching where he's running and who he's running to. And he's running to all the wrong people, right? He's running to the leper colony. And he's running to the immoral women and the tax collector. And he's running to Samaria and those who were chewed up and spit out by the world and have been kicked to the curb. The gospel all over, the gospel is good news for bad people. And it still is. 2019, the gospel is still good news for bad people through the finished work of Jesus. You know what I want for our gatherings all through this year? I wanted it last year, I want it again this year. I want every Sunday to be a place where I pray, prayed for this even leading up to this morning, that Jesus would run toward people, you, me, the front of the line, that Jesus would run toward me every Sunday and say, I have help, I have hope, I have promises, I have forgiveness, I have grace, come and get it, come and get it. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to just marinate in good news every Sunday, the best thing we say is it's not what we do for God, it's what he's done for us. Calling it early, next Sunday the best thing we'll say is it's not what we do for God, it's what God has done for us. And I get worried if I ever start getting more excited about some other truth than that one. I hope you feel the same way. So gospel, safety. Safety. We want this to be a place of refuge, a place of experiencing the healing, restorative grace of Jesus Christ for any who would come. All humble sinners, welcome, right? When one of my friends was a was younger and he was a pastoral trainee here in the city and there was a training seminar held for a number of young aspiring ministers and it was the topic of the seminar was tough love in pastoral ministry and they were they watched a video together the pastor put up a video for them to watch the backstory behind the video was that a professor at a seminary um, had confessed to having an affair he wasn't caught in sin, he confessed his sin. He was broken, he, he was broken before God. God had convinced him that he was in the wrong. He ended the relationship, he spoke to his wife, he confessed his sin, he said, I understand if you wanna divorce me, I've broken the covenant, right? He was broken in every conceivable way and then he went straight to the office of the dean of the college and he said, here's what I've done in all of its ugliness, here's how long it lasted, everything, and he shared that with the dean of the school. The next day at chapel in the morning, without any notice, the dean called the professor up on stage and told the whole assembly what he had done. And then he proceeded to say three times in the microphone, screaming, shame on you. Shame on you, shame on you. And the pastor paused the video and he said to these young trainees, what do you think about that? And my friend who's now a pastor in the city said, I think it's horrible. Why would you publicly humiliate that man? He had confessed, he had manifested the beginnings of true repentance. Why would you call him up there in front of all those people and humiliate him? And the trainer doubled down and defended those actions and another trainee next to my friend then raised his hand and he said, are you saying 
are you saying, if I was struggling with sin and I was weary of it and tired of it and I came to you and I confessed, you might do something like that to me? And the pastor said, if, if it seemed like it would humble you because humility is a good thing, to which this other person said, suddenly I feel less inclined to confess my sin here. A good news church doesn't heap shame and guilt. That's, that's not our business. You know, there's this Old Testament prophecy. It's a beautiful vision in Old Testament prophecy about a priest named Joshua, and the priest is covered in dirty clothes, and he's standing before the holy God, and he's dirty. And Satan is heckling him. It says Satan is accusing him. He's pointing at him. Look at how dirty he is. He can't stand in the presence of a holy God. And what does God say to Satan? He says, shut up. The Lord rebukes Satan. He says, somebody get this man some new clothes. And they wrap him in festive garments. That is what we mean by safety. Shade. Mercy, a, a social environment in the local church plentiful with encouragement and wise and loving counsel, a place that feels like refuge, right, where you can grow in faith and love and learn more about your God and fall in love with Jesus over and over. That's what the church is meant to be. That's where life and healing flows. So gospel and safety and finally, time. Time. We, we looked at these wonderful words in Philippians last year. God is at work within us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He's doing that in every Christian's life. But you think about it. God is at work within us, but the process takes a lot longer than we wish it did, right? It takes a long time. The great British theologian Maurice Roberts made this comment about the great saints of history. He said, the best believers found their growth in godliness slow and their spiritual attainments meager. How encouraging is that for you? I find that so encouraging, right? How long did it take you to learn the lessons God has taught you up to this point? Now, there are some of you in this room, you are so tender in ministry to others and that's not the way you were a year after you met Jesus. That's not the way you were 10 years after you met Jesus, right? Paul says, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. You know how you hang around with somebody and you start to talk like them and you start to act like them and your mannerisms are the same? Do we remember that the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence in us is patient? Let me just say that again. The Holy Spirit is patient. So you get around him, we start to become patient. He's so patient with us, we start to become more patient with others. So gospel plus safety plus time. What are we talking about? We're talking about a church where you can breathe. As a sinner, it's a church where you can actually breathe. You can confess the worst of it. And nobody will flinch. Nobody will raise their shock eyebrows like, oh my goodness, how? How could you possibly? We understand. We get it, right? 
You can confess the worst of it and what you'll hear, Lord willing, what you'll hear is, hey, hey, God's grace is big enough for this. And I'm going to be right here. We're going to walk this journey toward freedom together. You and me, let's start right now. Church, that's, that's a vision of flourishing in 2019. 